dismissed a children's church. Well, if you have been us been with us for the last few months, you've probably noticed that we began a sermon series on the book of Revelation that will take us through much of the rest of the year, I imagine. So a funny thing happened, you know, I'll give you a little insight into quirky pastor humor that um, I have a, the blessing of being a part of. So, you know, a few months ago, Pastor Jeremy decides, hey, I'm going to preach at the men's retreat. So, okay, Chris, you, you preach this Sunday morning. I say, okay, fine, what do you want me to preach on? And so we go back and forth, and he says, oh, it's Revelation 4 that week. I like Revelation 4. Okay, okay, you, you can't preach on Revelation 4, because I really want to preach on Revelation 4. And so Seth, being the ever-wise, mediatorial person he is, said, okay, well, why don't you just let Chris preach on Revelation 5, and then, you know, we'll vary the order. And, and then Jeremy looks at Revelation 5 and says, no, I like Revelation 5 too. And, um, and, I'm sh- and so here we are, we're not in Revelation this morning, which is great. I am sure we will be the better served in the following weeks by his offering of those two chapters. So I got a free pass. So where are we? We are in John chapter 8. Um, just because we can. The, uh, it's actually funny to give you insight to me as you maybe open up to, to John chapter 8. This is the text that always had a special place in my heart, oddly enough, because this was the text that when I met my now wife, I walked into a room and she was leading a Bible study on John chapter 8. So you'll see it's an odd verse to have is like your couple verse. I don't know. But, um, but that's what it is for us. In John chapter 8. So we pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who has revealed himself in time and history. We praise you, Father, that though you are so holy and holy other by virtue of that holiness, you have come so near. And though this very moment, Lord, we know there are throngs of angels singing your praises as you dwell in unapproachable light. We thank you and praise you that you are also the God who came down on this earth and was born, who who experienced hunger, who experienced suffering, who experienced rejection. And so, Father God, as we approach you, we thank you, Father, for the fullness that you embody. And we pray for your grace to be upon us as we seek you now in this time. In Christ's name, amen. I think there are few that would doubt that Jesus has ever been and ever will be a remarkably enigmatic figure. Jesus is a remarkably enigmatic figure. And one of the things I think that is interesting about Jesus is that no matter where you go in this world, to some one degree or another, you are likely to find Jesus somewhere. Though the picture or the person of Jesus you see may be vastly different. So whether you kind of take a tour of the world and hop from culture to culture, or you log on to cyberspace for an hour and a half and Google Jesus, you're going to see Jesus in a lot of different places, but you're not going to see the same Jesus. The, the, the Muslims have no problem believing in Jesus. They think he was a prophet. Not the greatest prophet, certainly not the Son of God, but they wouldn't disagree with the fact that he was alive and, and taught things from God. People like Mahatma Gandhi have no problem believing that Jesus was great and would say he was a great teacher of peace and morality. And and they would say that about Jesus. Jewish opinions on Jesus vary based on period in time and the specific subset within Judaism. 
But even they have a lot of different opinions, as we see in the Gospels, how some Jewish authorities would instantly declare him as the enemy opposed to God and others as the Messiah. And many of us, I think, if we went around in our daily lives and, and asked an honest question to, to people that we rub shoulders with at work or school or you know, on your block, I think few would argue about the fact that Jesus was a man who lived. I think, but many might argue about who Jesus really was and what Jesus really said and what Jesus really taught. And there'd probably be this kind of, I think, fuzzy notion that Jesus was a good guy who taught some things we should know, but maybe, maybe not something we should turn our lives upside down over. Everywhere you look, we see depictions, characterizations, representations of Jesus. And so the, the, the question then becomes to us, when we imagine Jesus in our mind, perhaps when you go to prayer, when you think of Jesus Christ, or when you read a verse in Scripture and you imagine Jesus, what is the picture that comes to your mind? What is the character and the nature and the will that you see before you there as you have that image in your mind? When you, like Sidney Sheldon has encouraged us to do for the last 30 years, give the proverbial, what would Jesus do in a given situation? What Jesus do you see when you're asking that question? We're about to look at a text where we see a confusion arise on the part of a group because they have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. I think it's very likely for us that we can be having a conversation with someone about Jesus today, but that, the way that conversation develops may reveal that we're talking about two different people. And so as, as we look at this text here in John chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we're going to see what happens when we come to conclusions about Jesus from the wrong source. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as a question, to, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus went down and started to, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, the next time you're in a conversation with someone who has the idea that the Bible is just a book of boring stories, this might be an interesting text to take them to. High drama. High drama. A crowd surrounding the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. A mob of leading learned men rushing into the scene, perhaps throwing a woman caught in the act of adultery on the ground at Jesus' feet. 
Stones ready to be brandished. The only thing standing between her and a certain death, this Jesus. And what Jesus do we see? We're going to look at four observations that I think we can make from this text and two warnings that spring from, from those observations. We have a bunch of pharisaical antagonists coming on the scene who think they know the real Jesus. And by the end of it, it's very clear that they have no idea who they're dealing with. Observation number one, the Pharisees have Jesus in a box and they're looking to trap him there. They have, they have Jesus in a box and they're looking to trap him there. We know from reading the four Gospels a little bit about the Pharisees. They were a group that did not get along very well with Jesus. They were one of the sects within Judaism that had a, a significant amount of power at this time in Israel's history. They controlled who taught in the synagogues, who taught in God's name. They, had, they, were, the, they were kind of the authority you would go to. They were the board of religious education that would say, you can teach, you can't. They monitored official teaching. They had a lot of power. And... Being in a privileged status, I think you can imagine then that they are the ones that also have an awful lot to lose if the people start to follow Jesus and not follow them. And so we see all this conflict develop in the Gospels as it becomes clear that Jesus isn't going to tow their party line. And we see continued and mounting frustration on their part as they realize that they're unable to outsmart, outthink Jesus. And then we see fear as they begin to worry what's going to happen if the people start listening to him and stop listening to them. Text tells us that they came to accuse Jesus. They were looking for a means to accuse him and to get him in trouble. And I think it's fair for us to imagine that they thought of Jesus in very one-dimensional terms. They thought Jesus was either going to be like this or like that. They thought Jesus was either going to be the kind of guy that would say, you know right, what, you know what, you're right. She's committed adultery, that's exactly what Moses says, let's stone her right now. Or, they thought Jesus was going to be the kind of guy that would say, come on, hey, we've all made mistakes, haven't we? It's not that big of a deal. For guys looking to accuse Jesus and get him, trouble, and get him in trouble and remove him, from the scene, it really didn't make a difference which way he went, but they had to be convinced he was going to go one way or the other. Because if he came out and he said, yeah, let's stone this woman, all of a sudden, he was going to be in chains. I mean, when they killed Jesus, when they crucified Jesus, the Jewish authorities didn't do it on their own. They needed Pontius Pilate. They needed Herod. They needed the Roman stamp of approval. They couldn't just execute someone. So if he legitimizes capital punishment in this moment... They've got him. He's gone. Or, if, if Jesus is over here and Jesus says, hey, it's not that big of a deal. All of a sudden, that crowd of people that was surrounding him, who that believes that he has come as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, is going to think, he's, di- he's disregarding Moses. Let's get this guy out of here. He's not a prophet from God. He's not the Messiah. He's a heretic. Let's get rid of him. The Pharisees had an awful lot on the line in this moment. Because there's this crowd of people around listening to Jesus, and now they're going public with this opposition to a degree. And they've got to know that if Jesus outwits them again, they're going to look the stupider for it. 
And so now is that they've gone through this plot to get this woman caught in this sin, bring her there. They have so very much to gain, but so very much to lose. And you've got to imagine that they thought that Jesus was going to be the one extreme or he's going to be the other extreme. But they didn't really care because as long as he went one way or the other, they won, they had him. They clearly thought of Jesus in one-dimensional, black-and-white terms. second observation we make is that the Pharisees have no regard for justice. I mean, have you noticed the missing piece in this account here? Hey, we got this woman. She was caught in the act of adultery. What do you want us to do with her? Where's the guy? We caught her in the act of of adultery. Where's the guy? Now, I never got the birds and beads speech from my dad in junior high. And um, my, in health class in senior high, my, uh, my health professor teacher was my football coach. So, um, you know, the kind with like the, the, like they always wear shorts all year round, you know. And so like when we got to like the sex ed portion, like I was acting like I lived on Pluto. Okay. I couldn't bear the thought. But last time I checked, you need a guy and a girl to be caught in the act of adultery. I think. I think. Soon I'm going to have three kids, so I think. Uh, And yet there's just the woman. They're not up for justice. The text tells us they're looking for a basis to accuse him. She is the means to an end. She is the pawn in their plans. She is going to be the excuse they use to get rid of Jesus Christ. It's like that time, perhaps, that some of you in this room like me have had where you used justice and or morality, is the excuse to do something that you really just want to do anyway. You know, like so when you went to your parent and you, you know, tattletailed on your brother or sister and said, hey, mom, do you know what they did? You weren't looking for harmony and justice in the home. You were, you were thinking, sweet, they'll get me the new video game. And my brother or sister will miss out. Or, or that time that maybe you've had where, you know, you're in the office and you're, you really want your boss to think better of you, so you're very happy to take advantage of the opportunity to CC your boss on, on an email to a fellow coworker requesting the information they owed you three days ago. It's not that you're looking for justice and harm, you're just thinking, hey, it's going to make me look better and increase my position and my standing. Third observation we make is that Jesus astounds them. This mob shows up. They want to kill this woman. They've got Jesus in the box. They don't care about justice. And then he astounds them. Every Bible study I've been into has always noted, probably too much noted, and wondered, what is Jesus writing on the ground? I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing. They bring on, they want Jesus to make a decision whether to let this woman live or die. And he just sits down and starts drawing on the ground. And, you know, scholarly opinion on this is remarkably varied. You know, there are some that want to say, hey, maybe he's, you know, writing, you know, a verse on the ground from the Old Testament. Maybe he's writing Deuteronomy 13 or 17 or Leviticus 24 that that you'll see in a minute kind of deal with this. Maybe he's writing that. But the fact of the matter is we don't know. Jesus could be playing tic-tac-toe. We really don't know. But what we can know is that the, the power that this delay would have had. In a world where we are so sadly accustomed to injustice being committed in the name of justice, on the part of teachers, parents, employers, even pastors, we see Jesus lean over and begin writing on the ground as if he does not even want to dignify this lynch mob with a response. 
as if he is so affronted, he's not even going to answer them right away. And yet as they persist, he does. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly they begin melting away, one by one, the older ones first. Until it's just Jesus left with this woman. And then the irony is, you're left alone, Jesus and this woman. The one person who has the right to condemn her. The sinless Son of God who has the right to throw a stone. And at this time, He doesn't. He says, go now, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's self-revealing to us that she is, though victimized by this group of Pharisees, she's in fact guilty of the crime through which she's been charged. But instead of being one thing or another, instead of being you know, super full of grace or super soft on sin, instead of being in those, appearing in those one-dimensional terms, Jesus has showed up in 3D high def. And he's towed the line, revealing the character and the will of God in a way that shattered their categories. And so these men, who you have to imagine, showed up on the scene thinking, we've got them, begin walking away in humiliation. Their injustice being shown to be that which it was, though it masqueraded, is the highest form of piety. Jesus astounds them. Fourth observation, and particularly relevant if you're a woman in the room. Um, I've talked to too many women, too many, especially young women, but of different ages, who share a burden and a stress and a worry that they say, hey, I really try to want to be strong in my faith. I really want to honor God. But there's so few female examples of faith in the Scriptures. Yeah, we've got Esther and we've got Ruth and, and you know, we've got Mary. Yeah, we've got a few, but... But gosh, there's just so many more faithful guys in the Scriptures. So to too many people, that's a stumbling block too. I want to draw your attention to something I think is rather significant and encouraging. When Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, he doesn't mean any old sin. He doesn't mean like, hey, if you've you know, never sinned at all, throw a stone. That's not what he means. He's calling to attention a specific provision from the Old Testament law that says in order to punish someone in order for a capital crime, in order to execute them for a capital crime, there needs to be at least two witnesses who have not committed the same crime. So we have something rather interesting happening. As we have this crowd of men begin melting away, we're not looking at guys who said, yeah, you're right, I lied to my mom in third grade. I guess I shouldn't throw the rock. We're looking at a bunch of men who were ready to execute a woman for committing the same crimes that they themselves had committed. We're looking at hypocrisy of the worst and the first order. We're looking at a double standard that sadly is still around today. And we see in this moment Jesus stand up for the right and dignity of a woman, even a woman who's been caught in the midst of sin. You know, and this is, this is rather, I think, in, significant because si- situations haven't changed too much in 20 centuries, have they? There is often this prevalent double standard between what is considered an acceptable sin for men and what is considered an unacceptable sin for women. 
in our culture, if you are a guy who is a promiscuous guy, hey, you're a player, and you know other guys in some circles will really look up to you. And yet, if you're a woman who's promiscuous, you're a four-letter byword. I have had the experience, like others, of being invited to go, you know, by some of my unbelieving friends to go to a bachelor party with them. And I've, I've remarked how it's significant to me that, you know, I find out what they want to go do and where they want to go on the bachelor party. And I know, hey, if your fiancé went to the same place, the wedding would be off. And yet somehow our society accepts this double standard. And so I think it's significant for us to note that Jesus Christ the example to us all, whether, a man, whether we're a man or a woman, unlike our culture, rebels, breaks, and shatters this double standard wherever he sees it. It's something we are so accustomed to, but he will not accept. Two big warnings that come out of this text. Number one, don't use God as the excuse to do something when he know, if you know he would not approve of your motive for doing it. Don't use God as the excuse to do something if you know that he would not approve of your motive for doing it. I mean, you've got to imagine when these guys show up on the surface, right? They, they probably think they look pretty good on the surface. We're trying to obey the law. We're, even though they're twisting it. We're trying to obey the law. We're trying to obey God. I, I, think they, I imagine they think of themselves in a rather remarkably good position. And yet John graciously informs us, they, but they did this for a means to accuse him. They did this for means to test him. Again, we see that, yeah, they, they, they look so, they're looking very pious and holy on the surface, but underneath, they're, they're committing the same crime. And it's so easy for us to justify sin with a Christian sounding, for a Christian sounding reason. It's so easy for us to appear holy when our motives are not. I'll give you an example. So maybe you've had this experience, maybe you haven't. You know, you're sitting there, you know, you're in the small group, and someone says, hey, how can we be praying for you? And you or someone else in the room, you know you're not supposed to gossip. But hey, prayer requests are a great way to gossip. Prayer requests are a great way to get the attention off of you, right? So instead of saying, hey, yeah, can you pray for me about this, this, and this? You say, yeah, pray for my friend Joe. And you go and you go, or you hear someone go in a 10-minute exposition about that person's sins, struggles, failings, and needs. And all of a sudden, eight people in the room are aware of all of the inner struggles and failings and concerns of this person, maybe whom that they don't know. And, and yeah, yeah, praying is good. God, God encourages us to pray. But there's a way in which we can pray that almost reveals that our motive is really gossip rather than intercession. If we really wanted to pray for that person, we would just pray for them on our own, wouldn't we? And share a prayer request of our own lives that we felt comfortable for people to know. Or say, pray for my friend who's struggling and will remain nameless. We, it is so easy for us to justify our sin with the appearance of holiness. And, and this should scare us. You know, we recently saw the church in Sardis as we went through Revelation. And what do we see in that church? They appeared alive, though they were not. They had the outward appearance of life and good works and going through the right motions and doing the right thing. But the inner convictions that gave rise to that revealed that their hearts and that which was motivating those actions almost disqualified those actions. It's a stern warning. God doesn't let the Pharisees use him and use his name, and we shouldn't either. 
Second warning. The Pharisees made stereotypical assumptions about Jesus and still people do it all the time today. People, it is so easy for us to look at Jesus in one-dimensional, stereotyped terms and rather than grasp the fullness of who he is. And so you'll meet people who walk around thinking that Jesus is some kind of cosmic cop. And like Jesus gets really excited to find people when they've sinned and to punish them. And that anything that goes wrong in their life, they're convinced it's because they sinned. And then, of course, you get people the opposite way that say, hey, the reason, if anything good's happened in my life, it's because I, I lived a holier life the day before. We stereotype Jesus. We've got some people who think that, you know, who make it out as if Jesus is some huge Bible thumper, the kind of televangelist that people like me want to, like, forget, who just loves to lambast people for their sin. And then we've got another group who looks at their, their stereotypical Jesus as the kind that says, hey, you know what, sin's really not that big of a deal. God's going to forgive it anyway. Don't worry about it. We've got some people walking around with a stereotype Jesus. That he's like Santa Claus, making a list, checking it twice. He's going to reward you if you're naughty or nice. Well, not. You've got others who approach Jesus and like, hey, he's this great vending machine. You know, he's kind of there, but I don't really need to pay any attention to him until I need or want something, and then I'll then I'll go and I'll throw my prayer in the slot. My personal favorite I read recently was, um, I don't think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. If that person was, was here before me, I'd say, who cares what you think? What would you like to think? Really? I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to think about Jesus. I, wanna, I don't want to know the Jesus as I think he is. I want to know the real Jesus. I don't want to know the stereotyped Jesus. I want to know the Jesus as he's revealed himself in time and history and as he is right now. You know, and, and that's where the problem begins. Some, some people, their stereotyped Jesus looks an awful lot like them. An awful lot like they would like to conceive of God to be. I don't like to think of him as a judge. I like to think of him as a father. I like to think of Jesus as the kind of person that's going to let me do what I want, when I want, how I want. Not the kind of Jesus that is going to call me to a certain standard of life, thought, and action. And so, as we approach this text, the question that the Pharisees were not ready for that day, they thought they knew the real Jesus. They thought they knew who He was. And they found out that their knowledge was horribly insufficient. Because they had Him in a box. And so that's the question for us. Do we walk around with some stereotypical picture of Jesus that is more in line with what we see in the magazine counter on the checkout line? That more reflects what the current novel or book that we've read is? That more reflects the current opinion we hear in the news or among our neighbors? Or is our picture, is our awareness, is our understanding and faith in Jesus of the Jesus who has revealed himself in his word to us? Or are we basing our knowledge of Him on something terribly less, terribly different, and terribly incomplete? We need, the remarkable thing about Christianity, among others, it is a religion based on revelation, not reason. We don't reason, oh, I think God would be like such and such, and therefore He would approve of such and such, and there He would do such and such. That's when we get into problems. We come to know the real Jesus when we say, let me look at who He reveals Himself to be and let me accept Him 
for who He is. Whether parts of it make me feel settled or parts of it challenge me to the core, let me accept Him on His terms. A closing illustration that um, I think illustrates this idea of how in today's, today's economy, today's world, we have a remarkable amount of people walking around with one facet, one stereotype of Jesus rather than the real Jesus. And it leads them to inordinately poor conclusions like it led those Pharisees. The question is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the U.S. as Jesus and yet not every Jesus is the real Jesus. We've got the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms. We've got the Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. We've got the therapist Jesus who's, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, and tells us how valuable we are when we're hard on ourselves. We've got the Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. <laughs> We've got the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone at any time, no matter what, unless they're not as open-minded as you. We've got the touchdown Jesus who helps Christian athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. We've got the martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death on a cross so we can feel sorry for him. That one's popular at Christmas time in cards. We've got the gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild with very high cheekbones, flowing hair, walked around barefoot with a big sash around his waist, and somehow looked German. It said that, I didn't write it. <laughs> um, we've got the hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all we need is love. We've got the yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. We've got the spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. We've got the platitude Jesus, good for Christmas cards, greeting cards, and bad sermons. We've got the revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. We've got the Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. We've got the Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. You think I'm making this up. <laughs> We've got the Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. It's, it saddens me that I have seen every one of these representations lived out in a person I know. And then we have the real Jesus. Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another healer, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had all been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity. The goal of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in the flesh. The one to establish God's lasting reign and rule. 
The one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim the good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the entire world. This Jesus was the Creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through the ministry of John the Baptist. This Christ is not the reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is the Lord God, the Savior of the world, the Father's Son, the substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than any of us could ever imagine. Those Pharisees were not ready for the full Jesus that day. Are we? Would you please stand and let's sing together of this amazing Jesus. Shame. 